Matthew chapter 22. As we're, I figure we have a couple more weeks in Matthew and before we finish the book. Last week, I think we got through verse 14 of chapter 22, if I remember correctly. After you study it repeatedly, you kind of lose sight of where you are. Um, but we had in the beginning of Matthew 22, there's the parable of the wedding feast and the idea of you need to respond and be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to get into the party, in order to get into heaven. Beginning in verse 15, the Pharisees were trying to figure out how to tangle him up in his talk, it says, and they sent to him their disciples with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God in truth. What phonies. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus knew they were trying to trick him and turn him against the Romans so they could turn the Romans against him. And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And they brought him a denarius, a little coin. And he said, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So the Pharisees taking another crack at trying to trip him up, seeing if they could get him to contradict either himself or the values that he was teaching. And Jesus just brilliantly says, you know, there are categories of life and you need to as a believer, even though I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, there are other governments that we honor and so whatever it is that you need to do for them that they're demanding just do it you're to obey the law Jesus demonstrates this in other places and of course it's left to Paul to teach in Romans 13 the greater truth of how we are to submit to government but here Jesus is basically teaching the same thing now the Sadducees come along and they want to try to trip him up it's they're kind of like tag team heretics and so it says that the Sadducees the same day now the Sadducees you, you always hear Pharisees and Sadducees they were like on opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of ways spiritually but they sort of ganged up together on Jesus when they could the Sadducees were people who didn't believe in resurrection at all in fact they, you know, the whole afterlife issue, they just didn't think there was such a thing. They also had a tendency, most Sadducees believed that we don't even have an immaterial part of us. They believed that basically people were machines or chemicals, you know, that we're bones and flesh and, and that's it. And except they did believe that Jesus, that God, the Father, has a spirit, but they thought no one else does. And so, and they were, a lot of Sadducees developed into um, Epicureanism, ironically, but Epicureanism is something, probably the dominant philosophy today. It's the idea that only what you see is what matters. So therefore, anything you do with your body, anything you choose to do with your flesh, it doesn't really matter because we're going to eat and drink and be merry tomorrow, we're going to die. That was kind of their approach. How you make that into a religion, I don't know. It's kind of strange. Why, why be religious at all if your religion says that religion doesn't matter and there is no spiritual uh, elements? But today there are still people who very religiously, I think, follow this kind of a philosophy. Everything that exists, the Sadducees said, was matter and motion. Everything that exists was just what exists physically and then the energy that it takes to move it around. And so they came to him, and they say there's no resurrection, and they ask, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That was the teaching of the law. It was one of the teachings of Moses that if someone died childless and he had a brother, if his brother would marry his wife, then they could have children and the first child would carry on the name of the brother. And so you, that tradition, you know, the, you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer and all of that. That's what they're talking about. So they said, you know, you guys, Moses has taught that now. There were with us seven brothers. 
I think they were making up the story, but it could have been true. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. So all seven of these guys married the same girl, and then they all died. I'd say after about the third one, I'd start getting a little suspicious and check what she was putting in the food. But, you know, at any rate, they all died. And finally, they say the woman died too. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. All seven of these guys were married to her. And, and so now when they get to heaven, if there is a heaven, then who's she going to be married to? Now, they didn't believe that this was a real problem. What they were trying to show was the absurdity of an afterlife. To say, oh, come on. How, if we go up there, how does that work? And there are people today who use other arguments to try to show the absurdity of an afterlife. You know, to say, to say well, look at it. Well, with all the people who have died, how many of them will there actually be there? It'll be so crowded. Well, will they, if you lost your arm on the earth, is God going to somehow get that arm and stick it back onto you? If you're burned up and they sprinkle your ashes over the ocean, is he going to gather all those ashes together and reform you? And, you know, they play all these little games. And their error is the same error of the Sadducees. Jesus tells them, the problem is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He says, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You got the wrong idea. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So he says, first of all, you're wrong in the idea of that people are going to be married in heaven. Now, this sets Christianity apart, and Judaism also, apart from most other religions. Most religions, um, Islam, for instance, really promote the idea that, boy, when you get to heaven, there's just going to be all kinds of sexual activity and all, you know, it'll be just as fleshly as you can possibly be. And, you know, what he's saying here is that's not going to be the case. Now, that may be disappointing to you. I know people who just feel like, oh, man, if I get to heaven and I'm not married to my wife, I'm not married to my husband, how good will that be? The truth is your relationship in heaven is going to be so much closer than any relationship that you've ever enjoyed on the earth. And I'm sure that there are going to be special bonds between people who had friendships and romances and marriage and everything down here. But the thing is, by not understanding the nature of heaven, we somehow think that if it isn't, if there aren't these exclusive relationships, then therefore something's missing. Or even more to the point, if there aren't those physical um, experiences that we know here, then, oh man, heaven's going to be really boring. The fact is, the greatest physical experiences that we ever have here are only a foreshadowing of that which we're going to enjoy in heaven all the time. The joy, the fulfillment, the, the ecstasy, really, of being in the presence of the Lord and seeing Jesus and worshiping him is greater than anything that we can experience on this earth. Most religions concoct some sort of really hedonistic attitude toward heaven because they're trying to get people, con people into thinking, for instance, that, you know, if you die as a, as a suicide bomber or something, then, man, you're going to have all this, you know, it's going to be like a, a big harem you're going to have when you get to the other side. And, and that's a fleshly notion that's as far away as it could be from what God has planned for us. Not that what God has planned for us is less than that. It's that it's so much more than that. And so uh, he says, you know, it, it's not going to be that way. The way that you know relationship today, it's going to be so much better than that. The relationship more like the angels. Now, by the way, as a little side note, this is one scripture that causes me to, to believe that in that Genesis 6 passage where the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. It's one reason why I'm skeptical as to believing that that is demons having relations with humans. Because if angels are, seem to be non-sexual, asexual beings, then I don't think they would be able to do that. And this is a scripture that I would cite in that just uh, as a side note. But he says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, now he kind of changes it and begins to present an argument for them. 
Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he says, you guys cited Moses. So let me cite Moses. How many times in the Pentateuch do you read God saying that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all just dead, they cease to exist. There is no resurrection. There is no afterlife. There is no eternity. Then how could God say that he is the God of Abraham? Not was, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is a good argument, certainly, to explain to them about the fact that certainly in the Old Testament we see a belief in the fact that people go on living after they're dead. Now there are some stronger arguments in scripture that he could have used and there are several places in the Old Testament to make it very clear that there's a resurrection. But he used this argument because probably because of it connecting to Moses. He could have gone to Job where he says, I know that though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I'll see God. I'll see him again. And, and you know, of course, David throughout the Psalms talks about the resurrection, talks about when his child died, I'll go to be with him. He can't come to be with me and things like that. Um, Daniel chapter 12 has an extensive section that could have been cited, but in this case, he was just pulling something out of the Pentateuch that's really obvious. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. They said, wow, yeah, I never thought about that. That's, that's a good one. So the Sadducees were silenced, and it says when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they got together again. Oh, no, we've got to do something. And one of them, who was a lawyer, asked, never mind, ask him a question. <laughs> ask him a question, testing him, and said, teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? Wanted him to pick one of the commandments. And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Rather than pick one of the ten, he picked that great commandment from the Shema, you know, the Lord our, is the thing that, that Jews prayed twice a day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And he said, that's the greatest commandment. And then he said, if you want a number two, this is the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And it's true. We've seen these scriptures before. It's just true. If you... If you can remember the Ten Commandments, great. But if you can't remember the Ten, remember two. Because the first one, loving God, is what summarizes the first table of the law. And loving people is what summarizes the second. And really, that's what God calls us to do. The law boils down to that. Love God. Love each other. So then, while the Pharisees were there, Jesus said, Hey, I have a question for you. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Oh, and they said to him, he's the son of David. They knew that the Messiah would, be, would come in David's line. So they said, yeah, the Messiah will be the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Quoting this, this uh, passage from David, from Psalm 110, which, of course, when we were in Hebrews, we saw that, that this was David talking about, you know, speaking about God talking to Jesus, talking to the Messiah. So he says, how could he be the son of David if David calls him Lord? There has to be an existence that, that was prior to that. And, and so... If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Embarrassing when you're a Pharisee, you're supposed to be one of the smart people. And Jesus comes up with this scripture that destroys what you've been believing. He says, you know, he basically demonstrates the Messiah is not what you think. He's not just one who will someday in the line of David be born and he'll be a guy. The truth is, he won't just be. He isn't just the son of David. He's also the son of God. No son of David would be capable of dying for the sins of the world. And so he points this out by showing where David says about the Messiah, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. 
And so that shut them up. Chapter 23, the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. We went through this chapter on Sunday morning. So if you're interested, you could pick up the tape for that. And now we come to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25 is the passage of scripture called the Olivet Discourse. It's the, one of the, it's the last speech that Jesus gives. And it's him commenting on future times, on what we call eschatology. Eschatology is things that pertain to the last days. Looking down through the future and, and seeing what it is that's going to happen to this planet. What it is that's going to happen. And, and Jesus' return, he had prophesied that already. Well, now in Matthew 24 and 25, he focuses on future things. This is the longest teaching that Jesus gives on matters such as this. And, and it's really a pivotal passage and one that's difficult to understand in some places, one that people sometimes violently disagree on some of the interpretations. And so um, at the same time, it would take weeks to to go through it extensively. So I just want to look through it with you briefly and, and uh, point out a few things for you. Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. At this time, they were Herod was rebuilding some of the buildings on the Temple Mount in order to curry favor with the Jews. And so some of these surrounding buildings as they left the temple, the disciples were going, wow, look at this stuff. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's going, this whole thing is going to be destroyed. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they asked him three questions. He was talking about the destruction of the temple, which would ultimately happen in 70 AD under Titus. But they were saying, wow, when are things going to be jumbled up? When's it going to happen? And so they asked, first of all, when? Then they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So three questions. The first one, when, he doesn't answer. He spends a little time in Luke and other places talking about that. But here he basically lets them know that it's not for them to know the day or the hour. But he does then go into an extensive discussion answering these other two questions. And he does them kind of in reverse order, um, which is a more logical order than the way they ask them. But first, here in the first, up through verse 8, he begins to talk in general about the time, what it would be like between now and the time when these things would be wrapped up. And he says, take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And there were a lot of phony messiahs. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pangs. It's just a start. Now, in their day, boy, can you imagine when they're thinking about this war, war rumors of wars and all this, and, and then seeing the temple destroyed and the Roman Empire overthrown and everything, certainly the, it could look like, wow, this is it, this is the end. But Jesus said, no, that's actually, it's going to go on for a while. And there isn't a clue here that it'll go on for a couple thousand years as it has. The fact is the existence of wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, earthquakes, things like that, that's not a sign that we're near to the coming of the Lord. A lot of times people get this kind of confused. Now, the fact that if you study, these things are escalating and increasing in intensity is perhaps an indication that, wow, that's certainly, and there are other scriptures that seem to indicate that these things will increase as we approach the day of the Lord as we get closer. But what he's saying here, his emphasis is, don't think just because of all this turmoil naturally and, and um, militarily and so on, don't think that this is it. This is the big one. This is when he's going to come back. He said, there's going to be a lot of that. That's going to go on for a period of time. It'll always go on. So forget about this notion that we're going to have this great peace. We won't have peace in the world until the Prince of Peace returns. Even during the first half of the tribulation, when there's this big peace treaty, there's still all kinds of horrible things going on in the world, certainly. 
At the end of World War I, the world thought, they called it the war to end all wars because they thought, okay, we finally settled things. And then after World War II, it seemed like, okay, now we can get some order. And then after other conflicts that we've had, it seemed like, okay, we sent a good message. And we've seen recently as we went in and mopped up Iraq, it, you'd think that American superior, superiority would be enough to assure some sort of ability to relax a little bit. But in fact, that's not the case because all the way through until Jesus comes back, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. You can count on it. And all of these other things, too, are going to increase. But he says, that doesn't mean that, okay, this is the time. And then he wants to tell them further. He says, really, this is just the beginning. These are just the birth pangs. Now, in addressing the, uh, he starts talking about the period that we call the tribulation period. And if you don't have a lot of um, background in studying prophecy and things like that. The, there's a time in the future. We believe that God, Jesus, is going to return as he promised and snatch us up, take us away. It's called the rapture of the church. It's the next event on God's time calendar. And when he does, it will begin a period of time called the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation it's a seven-year period of time prophesied by Daniel and by John in the book of Revelation when God is going to pour out his judgment on a world, on people throughout the world. He'll protect some Jews. Finally, the Jewish people will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. This seven-year time will end with a period of war called the Battle of Armageddon. And as the armies of the world are coming in to focus and attack Israel, wipe them out, and then turn their attention on Jesus, Jesus returns. The event of the second coming of Jesus that happens at the end of the tribulation, that's where he comes and sets down puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. The rapture is a time when he meets us in the air. We're told about that in 1 Thessalonians and other places. And so there are two distinct events, one at the beginning of the tribulation, the other at the end of the tribulation. Now, there are people who believe that the rapture is actually going to come at the middle of the tribulation. And the reason they think this is because there is an intense period of time, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, that's sometimes called the Great Tribulation, and it is here in Matthew 24. And sometimes people think maybe the rapture comes before that. Because the logic is the first half of the tribulation isn't so much God doing wrath, it's more natural things. And so, you know, maybe the, the rapture is only going to come at the middle of the tribulation. Um, there are other people who believe that the rapture is going to come post-tribulation, at the end of the tribulation. And if I had the time, I could give you a whole lot of reasons why I think they're both wrong. The, the bottom line for both of those positions is they don't understand the prophecy of Daniel. They don't understand the fact that the tribulation is a time when God is again dealing with Israel. You might remember we talked about earlier how Daniel prophesied this period of time of 69 weeks of years where at the end of that time the Messiah would come and in fact he did after Cyrus made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and if you count those days if you count that time you see that Jesus entered into Jerusalem right on time but there was seven years missing in those 70 weeks of years and so to make the church somehow in part of that or in all of it, the reason why people have come up with that kind of a view is because they want to believe that the church is Israel. And so when the Bible talks about Israel, they want to think that that's us. But we're not Israel. God has a plan still for Israel. I understand why historically people were not only um, post-tribulational, but even amillennial, not believing in a literal reign of Jesus on the earth. Because when Israel was dispersed and they were all over the world, who would have thought that they would ever get back together? And so, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you read the old theologians, you know, 200, 300 years ago, you know, they're, they're all, they all seem like they're post-tribulational. Well, that may be, or amillennial, that may be. But the problem is, 
it's because they looked at the scriptures prophecy and thought this can't be referring to Israel because there is no Israel. But ever since the 40s when Israel became a nation again, now we've started to see these prophecies are a lot more literal than many of us might have thought. Also, if the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, it doesn't make sense because Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation and lands on the Mount of Olives. In the rapture, he, he catches us up to be with him. So why would he catch us up and then bring us right back down? It's a, like a ricochet rapture. It doesn't make sense. But there are, I could give you about 50 reasons why I believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Um, there, there are a lot of good books that deal with these issues. It's not, a compl it's not something that I would break fellowship over. And I really, I've argued with people enough about it. I don't even choose to do that. But... You know, if you want to be wrong, you can be, but it's, you know, you'll see if you're a Christian, the next thing that's going to happen. Oh, by the way, another reason why, obviously, the pre-tribulation rapture is an important position is that's the position that says that the next thing to happen is going to be him coming. And we believe in the imminent return of Christ. That means he could come at any time. The Bible teaches that in so many passages. But if he's coming at the middle of the tribulation, or if he's coming at the end of the tribulation, then his coming is not imminent at all. Because we know there's a seven-year period of time. If he's coming in the middle, and that's the time when there's the abomination of desolation that we'll read about here, then you know right when he's going to come. Even if, he, if it's post-tribulational, you know even more so because you can count three and a half years from the middle of the tribulation when there's the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist goes in and, and pollutes the, the Holy of Holies. And you know exactly when he's going to come. So he couldn't say nobody knows the day or the hour because you can figure it out. Or at least you'd come really close to it. Anyway, <laughs> I won't get off on that. I guess I just did, didn't I? Um, <laughs> So he says, now, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, who is this talking about? Is he talking to the church? Is he talking to Christians? If, if this is a, if we're talking about a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture, then he would have to be, and on first glance, it might make some sense. It might sound like that, but since when do nations, nationalities, actually prejudice themselves against Christians? Oh, there's some element of that. But the truth is, I mean, even in Iraq and countries like that, there's a Christian element that they allow to go on and continue just fine. Their concern, obviously, the, the whole world is in such a radical way against Israel. Anti-Semitism is something that has been rampant in our world ever since the time of Abraham. There's something about the Jews that people just hate them. And, and so I think clearly when, it, when he says that they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, it sounds like Israel. Israel, the ones who bear the name of God right in their name. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets, not false teachers, as is usually taught, you know, to the church, but false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so he's building up this event that happens. Now, if you think about it, what is holding back the anti-Semitism today? What is it that causes the Jews to still be able to exist in Israel as a nation, to still be protected? Is there, you know, you could say, well, it's America. But even in America, I believe that if it were not for the testimony of Christians, if it were not for the fact that as Christians, we recognize Israel as being the Jews are related to us. We've been grafted in, in a sense. We got our deal because of their rejection of the Messiah. And anyone who's truly a Christian is going to have a special affinity for Israel. The Bible says he will bless those who bless Israel and he'll curse those who curse Israel. So most of the support for Israel today, even more so than from Jews, is from Christians. And so if you think about it, when you take the Christians out of the world, 
It's going to get really rough for the Jews. It's going to get really tough for Israel. The heat will be on. Because even in America, how many people will actually support defending Israel when Christians are out of the way? It's the Christians who are sticking up for Israel. And so we see this time happening. Uh, those who endure to the end will be saved. We find out about the 144,000 Jews that are sealed. They're the ones who endure to the end. They're the ones who last. Most other people are going to be martyred. But there is a group of Jews that are protected during the tribulation time. And so, um, and, and it says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. That's the gospel that John the Baptist taught. Repent. It's an Old Testament message. It's a, a Jewish message. And, and he says that it's going to be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And we find out, in fact, that during the tribulation, that's exactly what happens. The 144,000 witnessing, the two witnesses, I believe, are Moses and Elijah, who it's said that they are seen all around the world. They're probably on satellite television preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And and everyone will hear, every eye will see, and, and everyone will see it. And then therefore, now he shifts gears a bit, and he talks about the intensifying of the tribulation as we get into the second half of it especially. And he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation is a time, as Jesus says, it was spoken of by Daniel. He refers to a period of time, and he does it in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, and he sometimes seems to be referring to two different events when he describes the abomination of desolation. And there were probably two historical fulfillments of Daniel's prophecy. The first one happened under, you know, 150 years before Jesus came on the scene. Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who murdered over 100,000 Jews, and then he came in to the temple and, and polluted it, corrupted it, sacrificed a pig in there, and elevated himself as being the king. And, and so many people in interpreting the scriptures here say this is something that was historically had already been fulfilled. But why is Jesus then? And, and people who say, there are people who, I've talked about pre-tribulationist, post-tribulationist, amillennialists. To confuse the things further, there are a group of people who are called preterists. And preterists believe that everything in the Bible that's been prophesied has already been fulfilled. But they could look at this and say, hey, I was just talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But why would Jesus be predicting what Antiochus Epiphanes would do? 150 years after he did it, it doesn't make sense. And so Daniel, certainly his prophecy connects to that abomination of desolation under Antiochus, but also referring clearly here to an event that's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Now, by the way, if the rapture was going to happen in the middle of the tribulation, it would certainly say something about it right here, and it doesn't. But it says, be watching, because, man, it's going to get a lot worse when you see the abomination of desolation take place. And I believe that the Antichrist, there will be a temple that's been rebuilt in Jerusalem during the last days. And, and I'm tempted to just go off on that, but uh, I just will never get anywhere if I do. But there will be a temple that's built. And in the middle of the tribulation, after having had a peace treaty with Israel, the guy called the Antichrist, he's the man of peace. He's the guy who's going to bring the whole world together. He's going to, to have all sorts of promises about, you know, a new world that's coming and a new age and all. Well, all of a sudden, he's going to turn on Israel. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies and desecrate it, perhaps by putting a picture of himself in there, maybe by sacrificing in some gross way something that would be offensive to Israel. But that's going to happen as it did under Antiochus Epiphany. And it says, when that happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, again, if this was referring to the church, if we were going to be around at this time, who's it referring to? I don't know how many people can run to the mountains above Judea. I hope that's not something that we would have to do. Clearly, again, he's addressing Israel. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. In Israel, they have patios up on their housetops. I don't know that they are 
very existent anywhere else. And so again, another reference to Israel in particular. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And of course, another thing that makes it clear that he's talking to Israel here and not the church because this reference to the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The elect refers to Israel almost every time in Scripture when it's referring to a class as being the elect. This time, the tribulation is going to be an awful time on the earth, horrible things happening. Under plagues and judgments, a third of the population wiped out, then a fourth of the population wiped out. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be an awful time. And he's going, man, you, you don't even want to be alive during that time. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as Jesus is writing to the churches, he makes a statement. And Well, first, over in Luke, he says, pray that you will be kept from the great tribulation. And then in the letters to the churches, he promises, in one case, if you continue the way you're going, then you're going to go through the tribulation. But to, the, to another church, he says, he says uh, you know, well, we'll turn over there. Because... Frankly, I just don't remember which church it is, and I don't like to fake it. Um, the church in Thyatira, chapter 2 of Revelation, he, he's talking about their tolerance for Jezebel, a false teacher. And he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she didn't. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And so Thyatira is told... If you don't repent, you're going through the tribulation. And then over in chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia, he says, I behold, verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Well, verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial or tribulation, same word, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So he's promising them that he'll keep them from it. Again, in Luke, Jesus says, pray. I think it's Luke 18. Jesus says, pray that you'll be kept from the tribulation. So this is a period of time that God doesn't want his people to have to go through. He goes on back here in Matthew chapter 24. If anyone says to you, oh, let's see, we ended up in... Uh, Verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if any, and the elect in this case is the 144,000 Jews who are sealed and supernaturally protected. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, don't go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus uses this phrase a couple of times and probably making reference to over in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the fact that the birds are called in to kind of clean up the mess from the judgment that was going to happen. So this horrible time of judgment on the earth God's people, Israel, protected supernaturally, 144,000 of them, 12,000 from each tribe, and there would be this divine protection for them during this time. Then he says, immediately after the tribulation, verse 29 of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So at the end of the tribulation, this is when Jesus comes back to the earth on a horse ready to wipe out the enemies that have wanted to combat against him. The sign of the Son of Man, perhaps the shining of his glory before he shows up. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's real hard to say that and have it not sound like Greg Laurie, power and Greg Laurie. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now again, 
this, you hear the mention of the clouds, and so you think, well, you know, he's coming with clouds. The angels told the disciples the same way you see him leaving, you're going to see him come back in the clouds. But in all of the passages about the rapture of the church, the angels are never involved. There's no angel blowing a trumpet. There's a trump of God. You know, and, and so, so many of the details here connect more. All the time when angels are gathering people, it's always Israel. And so, so many things here that wouldn't fit in with the rapture that it seems clear that it's talking about a separate event from the rapture. And, and then it'll all be wrapped up. Now in verse 32, he shifts gears a little bit. And he says, now... Now he's addressing himself a little bit more in a general sense to when this is happening and how it's to happen. And he says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus is letting them know that the fig tree is in several places in scripture, a symbol of Israel. And he is letting them know that when you see the fig tree start to blossom, you, you ought to know we're in the season. Now, no man knows the day or the hour, but we ought to be able to tell the season. We ought to be tell when we're getting, when we're getting closer. And, you know, in 1948, when Israel was gathered together, given land and made a nation again, that was profoundly significant from a prophetic standpoint, just unprecedented from an international standpoint. When did a people who had been dispersed for, you know, 1,900 years almost get back together in their original land. It was an amazing event. And how God has protected Israel is just profoundly supernatural. Amazing how every time someone goes to war against them, they get ganged up on, somehow they end up with more territory. They end up, God protects them. And it's not because Israel is such a godly country. The truth is most of the Jews in Israel are atheists. They don't believe in God at all. And before we judge them too harshly for that, Realize what they've been through. Realize how they've been treated. It wouldn't be easy to feel, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you, you know the idea of, man, great, I'm a chosen, I'm one of your chosen people, why don't you choose somebody else? Seeing six million Jews wiped out in the Holocaust in Europe and things like that, certainly you can understand why the Jews or most of them kind of wonder, is there a God? Are we really chosen? And yet, God has held them together. God's not finished with them. He has a plan that he's going to carry out for them. And it's a, it's a great plan. His promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to keep them. They were unconditional. And so, he's saying, when you see this start to, start to blossom, then get your eyes open. You're getting in the right you know, place. And this, in... Before 1948 would have made no sense to Bible scholars. You would look at it and say, what does this mean? The fig tree starting to blossom? Oh, I don't know. And it's why people just thought, eh, revelation, prophecy is just too weird. I don't understand it. But now we can tell clearly what he was talking about, at least I think what he was talking about. Now, this brings up an issue that people have discussed a lot. Books are written on it. What does he mean by saying that, you know, it's near and this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place? A lot of people from 1948 believe that, okay, now we're a generation away from Jesus' return. And so they, well... Initially, there used to be a lot of people, if you read old commentaries of, of uh, dispensational scholars, they would say, well, you know, a generation is 20 years, so, you know, that takes us up to 68, and, and uh, you know, hey, the Lord's going to come back by then. And he didn't. And then people revised their figures and said, you know, it's maybe a generation is 40 years. And... I, it's still, I, I'm really hesitant to sit here and calculate when Jesus is going to come because it says no one knows the day or the hour. You're not going to know. You're not going to be able to figure it out. We can know that we're in that season, but by taking this figure, it's certainly not just this absolute key that we're going to be able to pin down, 
88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988, as somebody wrote a book. And, and then somehow they played around with it, and it was supposed to be Y2K. Your toaster was going to quit working, and Jesus was going to come back. And, you know, it, people continue to speculate on these things. I frankly don't know exactly what this means. Now, this word for generation... That word is used to refer to Israel as a nation in several places. And it could just be that he's saying Israel is going to remain. The fig tree is going to blossom and Israel will not cease to exist as a nation until all these things take place, until this happens. And that's one possible interpretation. It could be that he is defining generation as being as long as people can live, and we may be coming down to the end of it, but people who were alive in 48, they're starting to fritter away, and, and you know, eventually it's going to be no one who was alive in 48 is going to be around, and then you're going to have to go back and rewrite the books again. Another thing to consider is, when does God consider the fig tree to have blossomed? At what date? Do you start the date when the international community, or at least part of them, recognizes Israel as a nation there in 48? Or in actuality, when that happened, there were more Jews in New York, there were more Jews in Beverly Hills than there were in Israel. And so does God consider that the starting point? Or is it going to be something else that's going to develop where he starts ticking the clock? And then is it 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, whatever it is, 75 years, I don't know. But what I know is we've witnessed an amazing event, and we don't know the day or the hour. I'll never predict even one. I'll never. I, and the truth is, if I predicted it, then at least you'd know it's not going to happen that day because nobody knows the day or the hour. So if I figure it out, that's just one day that, you know, I, I'm, I'm wrong. And, you know, I could... And I heard somebody recently say, how many of you really believe that Jesus is coming back tonight? I think it was John Corson who said this. How many of you really believe it? And a couple people raised their hands and he goes, come on, you honestly believe for sure this is the night? And everyone's hands go down. And then he said, then if nobody thinks it's tonight, this could be the time. This could be the day. And I like that. But Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Really what he's saying here in these four verses is, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. It's not going to just, I'm not going to get over it. I'm not going to ignore Israel. I'm not going to turn my back on them forever. That which I've been saying I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. My words won't pass away. When heaven and earth pass away, my word will remain, he's saying. But he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So even Jesus at that point didn't know. Now, does Jesus know today? I don't know. We don't know. He doesn't say. But at least at this point, he didn't. I think it's pretty likely that he probably knows today. But he, he hasn't told me, so he's keeping it to himself. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, he shifts gears again. And rather than, you know, he's already talked about the flowering of the fig tree and how this, these events are going to be starting, or actually what's going to be the precursor to these events that he was just talking about. And now he changes gears a little bit and is now dealing with what builds up to this time. He's going back as he, as he began in verse 32. You don't know, but like it was in the days of Noah, that's what it's going to be like when the Son of Man comes. For, in other words, when these things begin. For, as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So he says, when, it, when all of this stuff begins to wind up, people are going to be living their lives like everything's normal. He's not saying there's something wrong with eating and drinking. The Bible says, you know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not that he's saying marrying and giving in marriage is a bad thing. No, it's just he's using some examples to say, just like before the flood came, people were just living their lives and nobody suspected a thing. Nobody realized that they were about to get wiped out. He said, that's how it's going to be in the last times. And I, and I, think, I, and I think back in the 60s and 70s when people were just so focused on the return of Jesus, 
Something's happened since then. A lot of people who were kind of expecting him to come at any moment have kind of gotten over it, have just kind of thought, well, okay, you know, prophecy, that's a, that's a 70s retro kind of thing. I'm not into that. And, and, and we've kind of moved on with our lives to some extent. And, and to me, the way that the world is living now, the sin that existed back in Genesis at the time of the flood is certainly endemic today. And, and I think that today things are being set up for a place where we're going through the motions, we're living our lives. Lives. Sin is increasing throughout the world, and people aren't even aware that something's about to hit. And so he says, they didn't know till the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, You'll hear many people, and I even hear, uh, one time I kind of got in an argument with another Calvary pastor when we were both on to Every Man and Answer talking about this passage. But there are many people who take this passage and say that, you know, this can't be talking about the rapture. Because they say that, that if one's taken and the other left, yeah, it sounds just a great passage for the rapture. But what they say is the one who is taken is actually taken to judgment. And so you'll hear people say Oh, that's not the rapture. That's judgment. That's being taken to judgment. The reason they think that, notice when it's talking about Noah, it says, they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So, so they're saying that, okay, the ones who were taken away were actually the ones that were wiped out by the flood. So they're saying that the one who is taken will be actually someone who's yanked off to judgment. The problem is that, and people who say this haven't read it in the Greek, because the word for taken is a completely different word in both cases. The word, the word that says took them all away is a completely different word than the word for taken in verses 40 and 41. The word for taken in verses 40 and 41 is a word that usually, not always, but it usually refers to pulling someone close to you. When it says that Joseph took Mary as his wife, it's this word. When it says that Jesus took his disciples up to the mountain to see the transfiguration, this is the word he uses. And, and more uh, to the point, in John 14, when Jesus talks to his disciples, and he's saying, you know, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. The word for receive you is, is the same word that's taken here. One will be taken and the other left, proslambano. And so uh, personally, I believe this is talking about the rapture. I wouldn't you know, die for that belief. But think about the image of Noah. I think it's a perfect picture. The, the point is God took the people that he wanted to save and took them off the earth and put them above the flood and into this boat. And so then they were able to come back to earth ultimately and start things over again. So I, to me, this seems clearly to indicate that time when God will snatch away his people from the earth before the judgment comes. And this is consistent with the way God has a tendency to do things anyway. But again, I don't want to go off on a rapture rant. Anyway, one will be taken, the other left, two, men, two women grinding. By the way, this is the passage that the whole Left Behind series gets the name from, the idea of there are going to be some who are left behind at the rapture. And so if you've read those books or seen those movies, this is where they got that imagery. So therefore, verse 42, watch, for you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. And again, if it was, if it was him coming to judge, would it say what time your Lord is coming? It's certainly a reference to your Lord coming to take you to himself. And of course, in the book of Revelation, after the first three chapters where it talks about the church and, and then it says, come up here. After that, the church isn't mentioned again. It's Israel that's being dealt with on the earth until much later at the end when we're in heaven. So he says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, another reference to the imminence of the return of Christ. 
He's coming when you don't expect it. And he's saying, if you thought somebody was going to show up and break into your house, you'd be ready. But here your Lord is coming to take you to himself. You need to be ready. You need to watch. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention. Don't miss it. He says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. He's saying, basically, be living your life in such a way as you believe that Jesus could come back at any time. Ready always, would you ever be ashamed at what you're doing if he showed up, is what he's saying. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. That's the reward of being faithful. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says, a key concept is to believe that your master could return at any time. And he, 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 again, here in verse 48, it's the evil servant who says in his heart, my master delays his coming. It's the, and, and truly, if you believe that Jesus couldn't come back tonight, well, you think, hey, I got time. It's probably going to be a while. If you're mid-tribulational and no, don't worry, it'll get really bad. And obviously he can't come back until at least a couple years after the temple's rebuilt. So I think I'll just call myself pre-wrath, pre, you know, mid-tribulational. And hey, I can get my act together when I see them actually building the temple in Jerusalem. Or if you're post-tribulational, you can go, I can live any way I want. And when the abomination of desolation happens, I still have three and a half years to get my act together. But it's only the servant, the good servant is the servant who believes that his Lord could come back at any time. And I believe that this doctrine, this belief in the imminent return of Christ, I'm not just saying it. It's not just a theological concept that I have out there or something that I want to defend or I'm interested in arguing about at all. I truly believe it. You know, and I have people sometimes ask me, do you really think that Jesus is going to come back pretty soon? And I, I have to be honest. There are some times when it just seems like, I don't know. There are other times when I feel like, man, I, I hope so. I'd love for him to come back tonight. It would be great. I would absolutely love it. And I believe that he could. I really believe that. If you, I wouldn't tell you that if I didn't say it. it. I know it sounds, the doctrine of the rapture sounds like some kind of fantastic fairy tale, but I really, really do believe it, that he will come back. And that affects how I live. I don't want to waste time. I don't want to live kind of halfway thinking that somewhere down the road, maybe I'll start to serve the Lord. I believe he could come back, and, and I believe that any doctrine that, that causes people to believe that he delays his coming will lead to more evil. You're going to live a different lifestyle if you think you have a lot of time. Now, I believe that Jesus tried to get his disciples to believe that it could happen quickly. You read what Paul has to say, and you get the impression that he definitely believed that Jesus was going to come back probably in his lifetime. And you go, boy, was he off. No, he wasn't. Because that affected the way he lived. I think of Chuck Smith, who, you know, has just always had this strong conviction that the Lord's going to come back in his lifetime. He's 76 years old. I don't know how much longer he's going to live. But if the Lord tarries and Chuck ends up going to be with the Lord, for one thing, he'll be in heaven. He's not going to worry that he missed the rapture. But, but secondly, the way that he lived his life, believing Jesus could come back at any time, he will be the winner for that, whether he actually sees it happen or not. The truth is, not only could the rapture happen at any time, but I could just stop breathing right now, keel over, and next thing I know, I'm in the presence of the Lord. I could pull out of the parking lot and boom, it could be over. You could too. You've had it happen to some of your friends. They just, you never suspected anything. Next thing you know, they're dead. And you go, wow. Well, we could meet the Lord at any time. I believe that. And if it's one way or the other, if it's through the rapture, if it's through death, uh, it's no big deal. It's not, I mean, I have to confess to you, I'd love to be in the rapture. I think the view would be pretty amazing. But if we die and then we're with the Lord, the view up there is so much better. And so, you know, uh, 
I, I think it's not just a doctrine that you play around with, like, oh, who cares, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, non-trib. You know, I, some people say, oh, I'm pan-trib. I think it's all going to pan out in the end. I believe that, that teachings and doctrine have consequences, and it, and it can't help but affect how you live when you believe that Jesus could come back at any time. And I believe that. I hope you do, too. He was trying to get this message across to us here in Matthew chapter 24. I guess I'll just put off Matthew 25. Maybe I'll take a chunk of it Sunday or something. I really thought we would get through it. These other three sections just deal with this whole idea of, of that we need to be ready and how we can get ourselves ready. And so if you have a chance before next week, read chapter 25, and then, boy, things happen quick after that. Chapters, you know, 26, 27, 28, and the book's over. So um, I don't know if I'll have the kind of momentum to finish it next week, but for, for sure a week down the road, unless the Lord comes back. And there's nothing that would be cooler to me than to be stuck in the middle of the Olivet Discourse and not be able to finish it because Jesus has this great illustration and sucks us all up into the air to be with him. And uh, I hope it happens. It's great. I, I won't regret at all that I studied this passage a little too much because it's fresh in my mind. It'll be awesome. I pray that it happens this week. Let's pray. Even so, Lord, come quickly. And we get a warped perspective sometimes, Lord, when we think about your return and you know, we think, well, we want to wait until we have kids, or we want to wait till the stock market jumps up a lot, or we want to wait until we see if the Dodgers get the wild card spot or something. And all of the things that we're looking at that seem to matter to us, they're so silly in light of who you are. Lord, make us aware of the fact that your return means relief and comfort to millions of people, your people who are suffering right now, longing for you to wrap this thing up. Yet, God, we understand that you're not slack concerning your promises, but you're patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all that would come to repentance. And God, I pray that we will do our part this week. Lord, we pray that as you pour your spirit out on a, on a world that's largely rejecting you, those last people who are left to be saved, God, bring them into your kingdom this week. Lord, we pray when that happens, when that moment happens, oh, just come back and take us. We long, we hunger to see your face, to be lifted up from this earth, from this earthly existence, to go to be with you forever. You've prepared a place for us. We're looking forward to it. God, every time something hurts us on this earth, we're reminded of the fact that we're only visiting this planet. God, we look forward to you coming back. Lord Jesus, we thank you for teaching us these things because we're not in the dark. We don't have to be. We're seeing things happening in the world, and it looks to us like the stage is being set for you to just consummate your plan of the ages, to finish what you started with Israel, and then to take us all to be with you forever. So, God... May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for that day, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all.